sitting on the fence about God. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. You know, as I was thinking about the lesson, I was trying to think about other things we sit on the fence about. Things that are hard to make a decision about. That's usually why we sit on the fence. We lean both ways. We're not sure what we want to do. Proposals. When a guy's ready to ask a girl, will you marry me? Now, he may be ready to ask that question, but he may be scared to death. I mean, what if she says no? That would hurt and embarrassing. I'm always, like, weirded out about the guys who do it in front of football stadiums and stuff. I mean, what if she says no? How embarrassing would that be? And uh, so sometimes, you know, you think about popping the question, but you wait a while because... What if, you know, she says yes, and I marry her, and I find out she's, like, evil? (laughs) In a sense, the guys got it easier than the girls, because they may never know if we're thinking about asking the question. We can wait for months or years. I wouldn't recommend waiting for years. Somebody else will grab her. But we can. But the women, you ask them the question, and they got a short time to think about it. (laughs) They can't put it off that long. So it's actually easier on us, the guys, than it is on the girls. Or um, another hard thing, you know, you got a job, you don't really like it, but it pays the bills, and somebody's offering you another job, but it's a new startup, and it may not make it, and this job is secure, that job's not secure, but that job looks more fun and has more potential, and you're like, ah, I don't know, or moving. But nothing in life is harder than going to a restaurant with a big menu. That's got to be the hardest right there. (laughs) What do I do? And I just sit there and I pull out my hair and it all looks so good. You know, I really like this kind of sandwich, but if it's not done just right, I don't like to eat it. How do I know if they do it just right here? And then I'm wasting my time and my money and I'll be disappointed. Oh, that steak looks good, but steak, it could be shoe leather. And it's so expensive. It's like I got a steak appetite on a hamburger wallet. Yeah, for me, it's a hard time going to restaurants. I love In-N-Out Burger. It's like, have a cheeseburger or a hamburger. There's your options. You know, yeah, you can add a little more, take a little off, but I love the In-N-Out Burger menu. I never stand in line and go, hmm, wonder what I'm going to get today. It's just easy. Well, I want to talk to you about the hardest decision, and it's not really the menu. I think the hardest decision, and the one people sit on the fence about the most, is God. I mean, do I really believe in God? Yes, I I guess I kind of do. Do I want to follow him? I'm not really sure. Maybe I'm not so sure because people will make fun of me if I become a... I don't want to become a religious weirdo. uh, And if I follow God, does that mean I got to stop doing these things I like doing that maybe aren't so good in his eyes? You know, I'll just put it off. Put it off. I I don't need to make a decision right now. I'm, I'm young. I've got my entire life ahead of me. So I'll just put it off. I want to talk to you about indecision by showing you five pictures. Let's bring up the first picture. What you're looking at is a town that was called in the Bible Hierapolis. In the days of Jesus, it was a place where people went to convalesce and vacation because of their hot springs. To this very day in Turkey, it's a famous resort town. 
people go there for their hot springs. You're looking at some of the outdoor hot springs. They have some underground hot springs. They built some hotels over hot springs. Pretty cool, fun place to go. So as you can see, all this white, it's not snow. It's not cold. That's all the calcium lime deposits from the mineral water over all the years. Let me show you the next picture. That's what you were just looking at from a distance. I took this picture. I'm standing in the town that the Bible calls Laodicea, which you've probably heard of it. It's mentioned in the Bible. And I'm looking at the hot springs that I've already been to of Hierapolis, which is also mentioned in the Bible, but not as prominently as Laodicea. So I got my camera here, because I knew one day I'd want to show this to you. And I turned around and took this next picture. Take a look. These mountains here are almost always cloud covered, always filled with rain, and fresh, cool water runs off this mountain. It waters the town of, for example, mentioned in the Bible, Colossae, Colossians. Now, these three cities were all within eyeshot of each other for the most part. They were like a triad of cities. Hierapolis was known for its soothing, wonderful hot water. People loved going there because of the hot water. It was a great place to go. Laodicea had a reputation too. Their reputation, people mocked them because they were the town known for their nasty water. And if you got Hierapolis right over here with their hot, famous springs, and Colossae and the mountains there that provide cool, fresh, drinking, refreshing water, and there in the middle you've got Laodicea, whose water was so bad they had to pipe in water from out of town. But by the time the water got to them, and by the way, the water that came it was all hard water. It was like nasty, and it showed up lukewarm. You can see some of the pipes that have dug out. You see all that looks like stone around it? That's not stone. That's deposits. Let me show you a close-up of the next one. That, that was a pipe once, but it just crudded up over the years. So if you lived in Hierapolis, you had bragging rights about hot water. If you lived in Colossae, you could mess with the people of Laodicea and mock them for their lukewarm water. With that in mind, Revelation chapter 3 says this, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. God tells the people, get off the fence. Be hot, be cold. But if you're lukewarm, I'm just going to vomit you out of my mouth. Some translations say it's better vomit than spit out. Did you ever drink some nasty, like warm seltzer water? Ugh. Just makes you want to puke. It does me. So... Last week, I talked to you about prophets and how to recognize prophets and not to worry about the false prophets. And we're going to talk more about some of the prophets today, but uh, let me catch you up to where we've been. We, we started into the books of Kings, and that's where all the kings and prophets of the Bible really come out in that 500 or so, three to 400 year period. And I said there was one king, Solomon, but because of his sin, God decided to divide the kingdom into two kingdoms. 
give 10 of the tribes to a new king and two of the tribes to Solomon's son as a way of punishing and trying to set things right. So the kingdom was split. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, had the two tribes in the south. The country was now called Judah. And Jeroboam had the tribes in the north, and their country was now called Israel. Rehoboam was mostly a bad king, and Jeroboam was a totally bad king. Rehoboam's son took the throne in Judah in the south. His name was Abijah, or Abiah, and he was a bad king. So he didn't last very long. While he ruled, Jeroboam in the north was still on the throne. So Abijah dies, and Asa becomes the king of Judah, the two tribes of the southern kingdom. Finally, Judah's got a good king. Turn with me in your Bible to 1 Kings 15. Here's what the Bible says about Asa, this new king, grandson of Rehoboam, son of Abijah. 1 Kings chapter 15. If you've got a pew Bible in front of you, that's page 346. If you've got your own Bible, it's page, I don't know. Imagine having to do this with a scroll. When we prepare our kids for their bar mitzvahs and stuff, we take out that scroll and to try to find where they need to read from, it's difficult, especially since Hebrew is not quite our first language. 1 Kings 15, verses 11 through 13. Here's what it says about this guy. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. Wait a minute, his father wasn't David, his father was Abijah. No, David was the father of the whole genealogy. That was the point there. Like Father Abraham had many sons. He's not our father, but he's our father. Same with David. Remember I told you that the good kings are compared to David. The bad kings are compared to Jeroboam. So here's a case in point. 1 Kings 15, 11 says he did good just like Father, did, uh, Father David did. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his fathers had made. He even deposed his grandmother, Meacah, from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive Asherah pole. Asa cut down the pole and burned it in the Kidron Valley. So, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa. Bad, bad, good. Now, his reign, Asa's reign, lasts a long time. So now we'll go to the northern kingdom and see who were kings there. First, I told you Jeroboam, he was bad, he dies, and while Asa is king, his son Nadab becomes king. So you got Asa in the south, king, and Nadab in the north. I know for a lot of you this is boring as spit. But my hope is I can put some sense to the order in the Bible. And you've got a chart. That's something you can keep forever. If you didn't pick one up when you came in this morning, you can grab one off the back table. Let's take a look at the chart. This is the chart that uh, you're going to have on the back table. If I can confuse Jim enough to have him get it up for me. Sorry, Jim. Can we get that big old chart up there? I even went up and I told him I was probably going to mess this part up for him. Well, if he can't get it up, that's fine. You look at the one that you brought down with you. Yeah, there we go. Just keep going forward until you find that chart. I'll look up on the screen when you get it. There we go. No, that's the menu. <laughs> get it away. Get it out of here quick. <laughs> decisions, decisions. Just go ahead and click through those if you need to. Um, so I told you Jeroboam was the king during Rehoboam and Abijah and Asa. But then he died. Asa stays king for a long time. 
while we go through a whole bunch of kings in the north. Here we go. Thank you. So I know you've got yours. You probably can't see this from where you sit. But here we've got Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and then all these little kings in here, which I'll talk about in just a minute, all during the reign of Asa. So Asa's kingdom in the south has one king when they have one, two, three, four, five, and starting into six kings. Because their kingdom was so chaotic, they couldn't keep a guy on the throne. But Judah was doing great. Why was theirs doing great and the other was chaotic? Because one was following God and the other wasn't. It's really that simple. All right, now we can go back to where we were. So we got Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, becomes the next king of Israel in the north. But Nadab was evil, and he was killed. There was a coup, and he was executed by a guy named Baasha. Baasha was also evil, but he ended up fulfilling one of the prophet's prophecies. Because of the evil of Jeroboam, God said his whole family was going to be wiped out. This guy, Nadab... He's killed by Basha. Basha kills Jeroboam's entire family. So he's not going to have any more sons on the throne. He wipes them all out. Here's what it says, though, about Basha in the Bible. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam. Remember, the good ones were compared to David, the bad ones compared to Jeroboam. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam, and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. So Basha kills Nadab and wipes out Jeroboam's entire family. Nice. So his son becomes king, Elah. Well, Elah's not king very long because he's killed by a guy named Zimri. You want to be the next king in Judah? Be the son of the previous king. You want to be the next king in Israel? Kill the last king. And if you can hold on to the throne long enough, you're the new king. But watch out because somebody's gunning for you. Eli didn't make it too long. He gets killed by a guy named Zimri. Well, Ella had a commander. Oh, by the way, Zimri, he killed Basha's entire family. So Basha kills Jeroboam's entire family. Zimri kills his entire family. And then he kills the king. So a guy named Omri, commander of the army, goes to avenge the king, and he goes after Zimri. Zimri runs for his life, hides into a citadel, and sets it on fire around himself and kills himself. What a way to go, huh? Burns himself to death. All the while, Asa is still king in Judah, and Judah's doing great. No turmoil, no coups. They're prosperous, they're happy, they're healthy, and they're strong. All these boys, they brought wickedness into Israel, and wickedness therefore reigned. Omri is famous for a couple of things. First of all, he's famous because he bought a piece of property that became the capital of Israel. And that piece of property is called Samaria. I know you've heard of the Samaritans. They are also named after that piece of property, but later in history. In this time in history, the Samarians are Jews. Their capital is Samaria. Okay? Later, a bunch of um, foreigners are brought in, and then they're called Samaritans because that's where they end up living. But in this time in the Bible, there are no Samaritans. The people of Samaria are Jews. They're Israelites. And because Omri founded the capital of Israel there. So in the Bible, when you read about Samaria in the Old Testament, don't confuse that with Samaritans. That happens at the very end of the Old Testament. And then it's brought into the New Testament. And Omri is also famous because he's the father of probably the evilest, most noteworthy king in all of Israel, 
a guy you've all probably heard of. His name's Ahab. If you haven't heard of him, you heard of his lovely wife, Jezebel. This is the couple. This is the Bonnie and Clyde of their day. Bonnie and Clyde were just petty thieves that caused a little bit of mischief and robbed some banks. These people were out and out wicked. They were just bad, bad people. And because they were an authority, they brought evil into Israel. You thought it was bad up to this point? No, it was really bad. Ahab was tough. He stayed in office for a long time. Nobody could kill him off it right away. And him and his wife just polluted the place. In fact, let's look at what the scripture says about good old King Ahab in chapter 16. Again, it's page uh, 346, uh, 348, if you're in the Pew Bible. Chapter 16, verses 30 through 33. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Remember, Jeroboam set up the golden calves and worshipped idols. He, he not only did that, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole, and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Wow. It, didn't, it compared him to Jeroboam by saying, ah, what Jeroboam did was considered trivial to Ahab. He upped the evil ante. He brought in Baal worship. Now, most of you are like, Baal worship? What's that? Well, let me explain to you Baal worship. First of all, ancient religions were a lot different than modern Western religions. Even though there's a bunch of different Catholic sects, by that I mean there's different monks who have different monasteries and different schools of thought, you pretty, know what, pretty much know what Catholics believe, Catholicism and Catholicism. Well, there's a bunch of different Christian churches out there. There's Baptist, there's Methodist, there's non-denominational, there's Episcopalian, there's Presbyterian, but they all, at least on paper, Believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins and rose again, and we need to believe in him to be saved. That is what Christianity is. Yeah, they got different beliefs about this, that, and the next thing, but it's pretty much the same thing. But back in those days, Egypt, anywhere in Mesopotamia, Israel, Greece, when it finally wakes up out of the dust in a few years, they'll worship a god, but you can walk 20 miles down the road, and another community will worship the same god in a totally different way even have a different name. So you might have Baal Zabub, or you might have Baal Ekron. They're both Baal, but they're so different. You might even have the same Baal with the same name with a different legend around him. So when I say I'm going to tell you about Baal worship, you got to know it's not monolithic. It's not like, here's Baal worship, this is what everybody believed and did. I'll give you what the archaeologists and theologians say was practiced in the area, but each little area had its own beliefs. For example, Baal uh, is God of the harvest, God of rain, uh, God of thunder. He was considered the God of lightning. Even seen an image with him holding a bolt. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Thor, Zeus. You know, the Bible says the idols of the people are demons. So my guess is, depending on which culture the demon visited, that demon's cult 
had their own way of worshiping him. Different name, same demon. Baal is a demon. They didn't know he was a demon, but Baal knows he's a demon. <laughs> this is what one of the theological journals I read said about Baal worship. Baal worship, a sensuous fertility cult, worship of a particularly lewd and orgiastic kind. Yeah, I don't even want to go into detail. It was a sex cult. Freaky, geeky stuff. And this was their religion. Could you imagine the diseases that ran around in that culture and the shattered families and the, ew, yucky place. And they did it to worship. Step away from these people for just a minute. And let's look at the earth through God's eyes. God takes the children of Israel who are subjected to abuse by Pharaoh and all the weird gods of, of Egypt. And he says, they're not really gods. I'm the only God. I will prove to you my power and authority over all those so-called pretender gods by conquering them through the plagues. And then I'll deliver you from Egypt. I will feed you in the wilderness, bread from heaven, water from rocks, no diseases, and you, a bunch of former slaves, will conquer every empire that comes against you. And I will bring you into a land and give you houses already built, vineyards already planted, if you will walk with me. A few years later, this is what we're doing. How would you feel if you were God? Now, I told you that these false idols, these gods, were really demons. A little background on demons. They were angels up in heaven who rebelled against God. So now, the children of God, the children of Israel, are worshiping the enemies of God. I don't know what your understanding or perspective of God has been up to this point, but do you notice he didn't destroy anybody? No smitings happening here, no plagues. He's going to send them a prophet to try to set them straight. And for the next four to five hundred years, prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, to try to get these people to come back to him. He's even going to take a prophet and have him marry an immoral woman who's going to cheat on him. As an illustration, that's how Israel treats me. He will do anything to win the love of these people who are treating him this way. Just want to give you that perspective of God. We get this idea that God's up there with a heavenly hammer ready to smite us for every transgression we make. Of course he doesn't want us to transgress. But look how patient and loving and kind he is when his own people that he redeemed and brought out of Israel turn around and worship demons, his very enemies. It's unbelievable. Well, Baal was one of the chief gods, but he had, according to this religion, a father named El. This is just getting insulting after insulting. Guess what the God of Israel is called? El. El means God in Hebrew. So this chief god, they're using the same word for God. Oh, and by the word Baal, that's a good Hebrew word too. It means Lord, Master. So they should be worshiping the Lord their God, and they're worshiping demons they call the Lord their God. Bad. Bad. Insult after insult to God's face. So El has this 
son named Baal, who everybody worships. El's wife is Asherah. And in some of the cults, it was Baal's wife, too. Two. Also. The guy had his own mother as his consort. I told you, freaky, geeky stuff in this religion. So Israel worshipped these Asherah poles, Baal's wife, mother. They worshipped Baal. It's a ripoff of the heavenly model. Here we've got Baal, the son of God, being worshipped as the people, as their savior, the redeemer of sorts. You know, the demons know all about God. So they took the heavenly model, they counterfeited it, Basically, they're really trying to shame God and take his place. And our people fell for it, lock, stock, and barrel. Well, I told you God's going to send him a prophet. But before we talk about that prophet, I've got to give you a little bit of background. Back to the covenant God made with Israel before they did all this weird worshiping stuff. He warned them, and he gave them notice, and here's what he said. The land you're about to enter is a land of mountains and valleys, a land watered by rain. So then, obey the commands that I've given you today. Love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart. If you do, he will send rain on your land when it's needed, in the autumn, in the spring, so that there will be grain, wine, and olive oil for you. They didn't have a drip irrigation system. They didn't have rivers running through Israel. You don't see that. So how do you grow crops? God waters them for you. How cool is that? Your rain genie is God. If you walk with him, he gives you just the right of moisture when you want it. It's perfect. The perfect garden watered by God. If you walk with him. Do not let yourselves be led away from the Lord to worship and serve other gods. If you do... The Lord will become angry with you, and he'll hold back the rain. And your ground will become too dry for crops to grow. Then you'll soon die there, even though it's a good land he's giving you. Stuff grows really well in Israel, but you need water. So God set it up for him. I'm giving you the great productive land. I water it for you as long as you walk with me. You turn your back on me, I'm turning off the switch. I mean, why should I keep watering your land? You want Baal to water your land? Pray to Baal. Let Baal water your land. He's the God of thunder and rain and autumn and harvest. You want to worship him? Let's see how good he waters the land. 1 Kings chapter 18, after Baal comes into the land. After some time in the third year of the drought, dun, 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 dun. That's a loaded statement. So what do I know? Well, it's the third year of the drought. So I know they've turned their back on God because he's not watering the land. And I know Baal can't. There's a lot in just those two statements. The Lord said to Elijah, go and present yourself to King Ahab and I will send rain. All right, God's about ready to turn the water back on. So Elijah went to King Ahab and here's what happened. By the way, it hasn't been raining for three years. So King Ahab knew that Elijah was the prophet who turned off the rain in God's name, went after him, couldn't find him for three years. Now Elijah goes and presents himself to Ahab. And Ahab goes, is that you? You who've been doing this to Israel, you're causing all the trouble. 
He says, I'm not causing the trouble, it's you. And you're worshiping of idols and all the stupid things you and your forefathers have done that have caused the trouble. You want to worship Baal? I'll tell you what we're going to do. Let's go up to Mount Carmel. And we're going to set up two altars. I'll have one, you have one. Gather all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, all 400 prophets of Baal or 450 and all 400 prophets of Asherah. Get them all up there. And I want you to put out a sacrifice. No fire. Baal's the god of lightning, right? So pray to Baal. Let him consume your sacrifice. Whosoever God answers by fire, let him be God. Deal? You 400, 850 against me and my God. Me against the thousands of you. Baal against Jehovah. Deal? They couldn't turn him down. Too much shame on their face. They said, deal. See, up at Mount Carmel. So up to Mount Carmel they went. Built their altar. And Elijah says, no, no, you first, please. He knew nothing was going to happen. He had a long wait on his hands. So they sacrificed their cow, and they go, oh, Baal, please consume this fire. Show everybody how real you are. Woo! And Elijah looks at his watch, says, keep going. One, two, three hours. Guys, maybe he's sleeping. Louder! Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Try to get his attention a little louder. Then these guys take out their spears and their knives and they start making their blood flow and dancing over the altar. Freaky stuff. And nothing happens. Nothing. About the time that the evening sacrifice was to take place in Judea, Elijah says, okay, You've had enough time. I've let you do this all day. My turn. But before I pray, do me a favor. Dig a trench around my altar. Go get some water and soak my altar in water until the trench fills up. And then Elijah says, okay, now I'll pray to the real God. Oh, God. <laughs> Fire comes down, consumes the altar, licks up the water, which is impossible. It's a miracle. And everybody falls down on their face. They know who God is. And Elijah says, now, all these false prophets who have been leading you astray, kill every one of them right here, right now. Elijah was a tough dude. Don't mess with the prophets of God. But at the start of this whole showdown, these are the words that Elijah said. How much longer will it take you to make up your minds? If the Lord is God, worship Him. If Baal is God, worship Him. Get off the fence. Make a decision. Pick a God, any God, just pick one. But let me help you pick right. And so he does. You know, big decisions can be hard to make, but Elijah made it a lot easier. You would think that would have ended Baal worship in the land, wouldn't you? No, they just got themselves some new prophets and started all over again. Unstinking believable. So I wanted to talk to you about sitting on the fence about God. That's what Elijah really 
So you guys, you're trying to have it both ways. Make, make up your decision one way or the other. We think that we can defer an opinion about God, but I want to give you a different perspective about making a decision, specifically about God, but it applies to almost anything. Let me think about it. It's just another way of saying no. Okay. House is on fire. You've crawled up to the roof. The firemen are there with the big I will catch you thing, I promise. And you've got to jump 20 feet to the bottom. And that's scary, and you're afraid of heights as it is. The fireman says, jump. Let me think about it. While you're thinking, are you jumping? No, you're not. You said no. Now, they're hoping you'll change your mind, but your let me think about it is no. That's it. Would you marry me? Let me think about it. Okay, that's scary. Why didn't you just say yes? Now, give her a couple days, maybe in a couple weeks, maybe if you're patient, even a couple months. But I told you about the people I saw on TV. This is my fiancé. Oh, really? When did you get engaged? 18 years ago? Somebody said no in that situation. I don't know who it was. But putting off a decision oftentimes is the exact thing as saying no. The Lord is our Lord and God. He's our creator. He's our maker. We're accountable to him. We can follow him or not. We have that power. We have that option. Let me think about it a few years. So what you're saying is no for a few years, and maybe it'll be yes down the road. I just want you to know that's all it is. That, it's just straight-up logic. It's saying no to God. Thing is, we don't like what that implies. It feels more comfortable saying, I'm thinking about it. Maybe. Okay, think about it. But a time's got to come where you've got to jump. Or that thinking about it is just a straight-up no. Now, when I'm sitting in front of my menu at the restaurant, what are the negative consequences of me dawdling? Do I want the steak or do I want the sandwich? Well, I might get the waitress upset for making her come back six times, get my family upset because they were all ready to order five minutes before they got in the door. The worst thing that could happen is I don't eat. I go home and make a tuna sandwich, right? Consequences for that indecision are minimal. But as you up the ante, the consequences get more and more significant. The one about the roof jumping, you know, you can, until the roof falls in, you can, you can say, I don't, I'm not going to jump. But after the roof caves in, it's too late. Decision made. Consequences were dire on that one. What are the consequences for saying no to God? I think you know. Don't make me use that bad word. I read to you that passage of Scripture about the hot and cold water. And he said, I wish you would just choose one over the other, just make a, make a decision. In that same context, the Scripture says this. Look, I'm standing at the door and knocking. Now, Brian, we're going to take a walk. So Jesus says, he's standing at the door and he's knocking. Who is it? It's me, Jesus. What are you going to do? Let me think about it. Right? Right? 
uh, hello? Is anybody there? Didn't I, did, did somebody say something? Yeah, who is that? It's me, Jesus, Lord, God, Savior, Creator of the universe. The guy who can take you to heaven. Just a minute. How long are you going to leave him there? How long is he going to stand there and knock? Look, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone listens to my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. I'll have supper with him. And he can have supper with me. The one who conquers or overcomes. Overcomes what? Sin? Doubt? Indecision? The one who conquers, I will give a place to sit with me on my throne. Just as I have conquered and have sat down with my father on his throne. Listen to the last few words. Let everyone listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for knocking at the door, for taking the trouble in the first place. And I just pray that you would send forth your Holy Spirit to touch the hearts and lives of people that they might make the decision to drink the cool waters or to bathe in the hot waters. That they would open the door and choose to worship the only true and living God, Savior of all. Thank you so much for, despite their sin, you sent them Elijah. And despite our sin, our doubts, our indecision, you've sent Jesus to die for our sins. I pray that all would come to honor him and to make the wise and right decision even soon to worship him, to obey him, and to walk with him before that horrible day comes when there's no more a knocking on the door. Lord, you are saying this to the people within the church, not the people without. Wake us up, we pray. Jesus' name. Amen.
you to think in your mind's eye for just a moment about somebody in your life that you know loves you. The kind of person that doesn't judge you, that'll bend over backwards for you. Uh, maybe it's your grandma. Uh, maybe it's your brother, your sister, your mom, or your dad. Maybe it's your spouse. I want you to have that picture in your mind of what that love's like. And to understand that God's love for you is much greater than that. Much greater than that. He loves us with, there aren't even words to, to describe the kind of love he has for us. And he's reaching out his hand. He sent his son to bridge the gap, to try to get reconciliation between him and us. He will do anything but force you. So if you've not given your heart to Jesus and would like to do that this morning, we have some folks over here in the prayer room that would love to pray with you and help you make that decision, give you some reading material to help you in your walk with the Lord. Or maybe you've already made that decision, um, but you need prayer for some other things. Maybe recommitment, maybe health finances. These people would be honored, humbled, and blessed to pray with you. So I'm going to dismiss you. Hopefully you'll take advantage of this ministry over here. And uh, by God's grace, I will see you Wednesday night for our small groups. Please bow your heads for the benediction, and then I'll dismiss you. May the Lord bless you. And may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace.